Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today, we'll examine the novella Apt Pupil from 1982's collection Different Seasons. This is the second novella I will examine, the first, of course, having been Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Now, this is my second time reading Apt Pupil, the first time when I was young, way too young to really grasp the disturbing nature inherent in this story. And make no mistake, this is a very, very disturbing story. But I'm going to get into that. Before I begin my review, let's just take a look at the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. In 1974, Todd Bowden arrives at the doorstep of elderly German immigrant Arthur Denker, accusing him of being a wanted Nazi war criminal named Kurt Dussender. The old man initially denies the allegation, but eventually acknowledges his true identity. But rather than turning Dussender over to the proper authorities, Todd asks to hear highly detailed stories about his crimes, having recently become interested in the Holocaust. However, Todd still threatens Dussender with exposure should he refuse his demands. Over the next several months, Todd visits Dussender daily under the pretext of reading to him, all the while badgering him into revealing more details of his atrocities. Todd soon gives Dussender a SS uniform, forcing him to wear it and march on command. As his relationship with Dussender continues, Todd also begins to have nightmares and sees his grades slip. After being confronted by his father about his grades, he forges his report cards before giving them to his parents. Eventually, Todd becomes in danger of failing several courses. This causes Ed French, Todd's guidance counselor, to seek an appointment with the Bowdens. Todd and Dussender concoct a ruse, having Dussender go to French's appointment while posing as Todd's grandfather, Victor. Dussender falsely claims that Todd's grades are the result of problems at home and promises to make sure his grades improve. French believes Dussender's story but notices that Todd's grandfather does not mention him by name. Knowing that Todd has been doctoring his report cards and knowingly socializing with a war criminal, Dussender blackmails Todd into spending his visits studying. With great effort, Todd is able to sufficiently improve his schoolwork. Since he no longer has any use for Dussender, Todd resolves to kill him and make it look like an accident. Todd had earlier claimed to have given a letter about Dussender to a friend. If anything should happen to Todd, the letter will be sent to the authorities. However, before Todd can kill Dussender, the old man claims to have written about Todd's involvement with him and put his statement into a safe deposit box that will be found upon his death. Over the next few months, Todd murders several homeless vagrants. He finds that committing murder somehow helps with his nightmares. As years pass, Todd's visits to Dussender become less frequent. He loses his virginity, but finds sex unsatisfying compared to the thrill of murdering local derelicts. When circumstances do not allow him to continue his serial killings, he picks a concealed spot overlooking the freeway and aims at people in passing cards with his hunting rifle. Dussender, suffering from his own nightmares, has also taken to killing the homeless for essentially the same reason as Todd, burying the bodies in his basement. Despite the link between them, Dussender and Todd are not immediately aware of each other's exploits. One night, when Dussender is digging a grave for his latest victim, he has a heart attack. He summons Todd, who buries the body and cleans up the crime scene before finally calling an ambulance. At the hospital, Dussender happens to share a room with Morris Heisel, an elderly Jewish man who recognizes Mr. Denker but cannot place him. When Todd visits Dussender in the hospital, Dussender admits he was bluffing about the safe deposit box at the bank, as was Todd's threat about his letter. 
Dusender has read about the homeless men murdered by Todd and tells the boy not to get careless. Dusender declares that we are quits. A few days later, Heisel realizes that Denker is Dusender, the commandant of the camp where his wife and daughters died in the gas chambers. An Israeli Nazi hunter named Weisskopf visits Dusender, telling him that he has been found out. After Weisskopf leaves, Dusender steals some drugs from the hospital dispensary and commits suicide. When Dusender's identity is, re is revealed to the world, Todd convinces his parents that he didn't know about Dusender's past. Meanwhile, a police detective named Rickler, accompanied by Weisskopf, interviews Todd and is not so easily convinced. The vagrant recognizes Todd as the last person seen with several of the homeless victims and notifies the police. Meanwhile, French meets Todd's real grandfather. French brings up their previous conversation, but the real Victor Bowden obviously doesn't recall their meeting. French becomes suspicious and checks Todd's old report cards, finding that they had been tampered with. Later, he identifies the late Kurt Dussender as the man who met him about Todd's grades. French confronts Todd, who responds by fatally shooting him. Todd then takes his rifle and ammunition to his hideout by the freeway. He embarks on a shooting spree, resulting in his death at the hands of the authorities five hours later. So, with Apt Pupil, King reveals his most squalid, most dangerous, most horrifying monster yet. It's not a vampire, not any of the ghosts who walk the halls of a haunted hotel or the haunted hotel itself. Not some boot-heeled devilish imp. Not a possessed St. Bernard or a lunatic politician bent on world domination. Not a secret government organization determined to kidnap little children. No. Each of these characters that I just mentioned, Barlow, the Overlook Hotel, Cujo, Flag, Greg Stilson, Hollister, Rainbird, all of them would all run in terror and disgust at Todd, the boy who grew up with everything and fell in love with the Nazi after reading of the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. Now, up until this point, King has created cartoonish characters, and I mean that completely complimentary. I mean, his villains are like comic book villains. Randall Flagg, Barlow, Margaret White, and then later on Pennywise, and, and Rainbird, Tack, uh, Walter O'Dim, Martin Broadcloak, George Stark, Christine. These are all cartoonish characters. You know, King grew up reading comic books, so it's no surprise that his villains have comic book-like villainy. It's often said that a hero is only as good as his villain, and King certainly lives by that. As I've stated before in the Stephen King cast, despite the monstrosities brought about by his villains, he's a hopeful writer, focusing on the hero overcoming the evils. With his well-defined, scene-stealing villains, his heroes seem that much more just. You root for them just a little bit more. Until now, his demonstrations of evil characters have resulted with uh, charismatic manipulators of cold intelligence. Here, King reveals that evil is not some... Uh, malicious dark entity that exists outside of us, trying to influence our lives. There's no intelligence here. It doesn't have a purpose. Uh, here, King explores the concept of evil as squalid and stupid, and that to me is more terrifying. Todd is so atrocious of a human being that even the Nazi calls him a monster. So, Apt Pupil begins with the quintessential small American town and the all-American boy. Soon, King is going to show us that no place, no matter how seemingly perfect, is ever truly safe from the effects of evil. Now, David uh, Lynch, the director, explores this concept with the television show Twin Peaks, um, you know, and, and then his movie, Blue Velvet. Both examine the dark shadows cast by the suburban sun. 
you know, and he even begins Blue Velvet with an image of a picturesque suburbia, you know, a happy father and husband watering a perfectly cared for lawn. Uh, when he's struck by a heart attack, he collapses onto the oh-so-green grass, and the camera begins to pan below, into the dirt, a visual statement that beneath all things beautiful can burrow dark and slimy things. And King does the same thing here, showing us the collective unconscious of a small-town life, and will soon begin to pervert it. He does this on page 109. Now I'm reading the, uh, the the paperback Signet edition, and I, as I said before in the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption uh, review, it's it's the weird cover with the baby um, on the front. So the, here's how the story starts, and it, it just uh, perfectly captures what I had just been talking about. He looked like a total all-American kid as he pedaled his 26-inch Schwinn with the ape hanger handlebars up to the residential suburban street, and that's just what he was. Todd Bowden, 13 years old, five feet eight, and a healthy 140 pounds. Hair the color of ripe corn, blue eyes, white even teeth, lightly tanned skin marred not by even the first shadow of adolescent acne. He was smiling a summer vacation smile as he pedaled through the sun and shade not too far from his own house. He looked like the kind of kid who might have a paper route. As a matter of fact, he did. He delivered to the Santo Donato Clarion. He also looked like the kind of kid who might sell greeting cards for premiums, and he had done that too. They were the kind that come with your name printed on the inside, Jack and Mary Burke, or Don and Sally, or the Merchantsons. He looked like the sort of boy who might whistle while he worked, and he often did so. He whistled quite prettily, in fact. His dad was an architectural engineer who made $40,000 a year. His mom had majored in French in college and had met Todd's father when he desperately needed a tutor. She typed manuscripts in her spare time. She had kept all of Todd's old school reports in a folder. Her favorite was his final fourth grade card on which Mrs. Upshaw had scratched Todd is an extremely apt pupil. He was, too. Straight A's and B's all the way up that line. If he had done any better, straight A's, for example, his friends might have begun to think that he's weird. So King starts off with this, like, perfect image of the perfect boy, the perfect small town, and soon perverts everything. As the story progresses, it becomes an incredible demonstration of a battle of wills, the nature and need for power of characters who underestimate their opponents at every single turn, of deceitful appearances. The fragile old man is not as fragile as you might believe. The all-American boy is actually the corruption of the American ideal. What looks like purity is actually pure evil. So... I want to talk a lot about the battle of wills and the constant reversal of power. The only thing that remains constant about these two characters, and I'm talking about Todd and Dussender, um, is their constant reversal of power. Just when one thinks that he has the upper hand, it's revealed that the other has usurped all control. Now this first presents itself on the porch after Todd has revealed to Denker and us that he knows of the old man's war crimes. At this moment, he is in control. Yet on page 114, when Denker invites him into his house, King writes the following. In spite of everything, Todd felt the onset of doubt. He couldn't be wrong, could he? Was there some mistake on his part? He didn't think so, but this was no schoolroom exercise. It was real life. So he felt a surge of relief, mild relief, as he assured himself later, when Dussender said, You may come in for a moment if you'd like, but only because I do not wish to make trouble for you. Do you understand? Sure, Mr. Dussender, Todd said. He opened the screen and came in the hall. Dussender closed the door behind him shutting him off. The house smelled stale and slightly malty. It smelled the way Todd's own house smelled sometimes in the morning after his folks had thrown a party and before his mother had a chance to air it out, but this smell was worse. It was lived in and ground in. It was liquor, fried food, sweat, old clothes. 
and some stinky medicinal smell like Vicks or mentholium. It was dark in the hallway, and Dussender was standing too close, his head hunched into the collar of his robe like the head of a vulture waiting for some hurt animal to give up the ghost. In that instant, despite the stubble and the loosely hanging flesh, Todd could see the man who had stood inside the black SS uniform more clearly than he had ever seen him on the street, and he felt a sudden lancet of fear slide into his belly. Mild fear, he amended later. He teases that despite his knowledge, Todd isn't necessarily in control, and the scene, despite its lack of supernatural elements, feels very much like a horror novel, with Denker like an ancient vampire playing with the foolhardy vampire hunter who overestimated his own abilities. The power struggle continues, with Todd poking at Denker, Denker threatening to call police, Todd standing his ground, Denker telling a half-truth to hopefully satisfy Todd, Todd refusing to give in before Denker finally gives up pretending and submits with the weary exclamation of a boy. An entire life of well-constructed lies and deceit comes crashing down through the machinations of a sheltered, privileged little snot. Todd ends their first conversation in complete control. Denker, afraid of the truth getting out, is forced into a relationship with the boy who takes and takes and demands more even when asked to stop. Again, King gives us a reversal here. Because of the description of this, strongly suggests abuse, but does not come at the hands of the old man upon the boy, but from the boy's urges upon the old man. King continues this symbolic abuse while simultaneously reinforcing the perversion of traditionally held ideas with Todd's Christmas present to Denker. In an incredibly disturbing scene, Todd forces Denker to strip his clothes and put on an SS uniform. The old man begs, but Todd insists. The abuse not only continues, but has now escalated. On page 135, Todd has now forced the gruesome details from Denker, and King teases the slightest shift, hinting that Todd, who has held all the power this far, might not hold the power soon. King writes, Dussender didn't reply. His eyes were hazed with memory. His face was far away and cold, like the dark side of a planet which does not rotate. Inside his mind, he felt the queerest combination of, could it be? Nostalgia? Here, the sleeping dragon, whose tail Todd has been yanking, is starting to awaken. Then, after telling Todd of the horrific manner in which the gas was used to murder the prisoners, King finishes the section with the following bit. Todd smiled at him, and incredibly, certainly not because he wanted to, Dussender found himself smiling back. The dragon is shrugging off the effects of sleep and is pleased with the meal that has presented itself to him. And on page 140, King explicitly states that he's lost control, that Todd has lost control. He's gone too far, and in a continuation of the scene in which he forces Dussender to wear the uniform, he forces him to march in the dark shadows of the old man's living room, a caricature of the man he once was. Or is he? He snapped to attention, and for a moment, Todd was scared. Really scared. He felt like the sorcerer's apprentice, who had brought the brooms to life, but who had not possessed enough wit to stop them once they got started. The old man living in genteel poverty was gone. Dussender was here. And then his face was replaced by a tingling sense of power. Dussender pivoted neatly, the bourbon forgotten, the torment of his last four months forgotten. He heard his heels click together again as he faced the greased, splattered stove. Beyond it, he could see the dusty parade around of the military academy where he had learned his soldier's trade. 
With a strangled sound, Dustinger began to goose-step across the faded linoleum on his kitchen floor. He right-faced to avoid the table, right-faced again as he approached the wall. His face was up-tilted slightly, expressionless. His legs rammed out before him, then crashed down, making the cheap china rattle in the cabinet over the sink. His, his arms moved in short arcs. The image of the walking brooms recurred to Todd, and his fright recurred with it. It suddenly struck him that he didn't want Dussender to enjoy any part of this, and that perhaps, just perhaps, he had wanted to make Dussender appear ludicrous even more than he had wanted to make him appear authentic. But somehow, despite the man's age and the cheap dime store furnishings of the kitchen, he didn't look ludicrous in the least. He looked frightening. For the first time, the corpses in the ditches and the crematorium seemed to take on their own reality for Todd. The photographs of the tangled arms and legs and torsos, fish belly white in the cold spring rains of Germany, were not something staged like a scene in a horror film. The piles of bodies created from the department store dummies, say, to be picked up by the grips and propmen when the scene was done, but simply a real fact, stupendous and inexplicable and evil. For a moment it seemed to him that he could smell the bland and slightly smoky odor of decomposition. Terror gathered in him. Stop, he shouted. Dustinger continued to goose-step, his eyes blank and far away. His head had come up even more, pulling the scrawny chicken tendons of his throat tight, tilting his chin at an arrogant angle. His nose, blade-thin, jutted obscenely. Todd felt sweat in his armpits. Halt! he cried out. Dustinger halted, right foot forward, left coming up, and then down beside the right with a single piston-like stamp. For a moment, the cold lack of expression held on his face, robotic, mindless, and then it was replaced by confusion. Todd let out a silent breath of relief, and for a moment he was furious with himself. Who's in charge here anyway? Then his self-confidence flooded back in. I am, that's who. And he'd better not forget it. He began to smile again. Pretty good, but with a little practice, I think he'll be a lot better. Dussender stood mute, panting, his head hanging. You can take it off now, Todd added generously, and couldn't help wondering if he really wanted Dussinger to put it on again. For a few seconds there. The reversal has begun in earnest. Following this scene, we learn that not only are the boys grade slipping, but he is having horrible nightmares that shift between his role as a prisoner and he as an SS officer, a visual way of reminding us about his lack of control. King follows this with a scene dedicated to Dussinger only. Until this point, Todd has been our point-of-view character. This Dussinger scene illustrates the ongoing shift of power. The power shift continues with a scene at Todd's house. Still written from the perspective of Dussinger now, we are given a glimpse into the dinner that had been cooked in Dussinger's honor by Todd's parents, a friendly meal to get to know the man with whom Todd has been spending so much time. And Dussinger completely controls the scene, commanding the conversation with charm and flattery while Todd grows more and more sullen. In the way home, Dussinger acknowledges the power shift, completely diffusing Todd's now-empty threats on page 152. I'll tell you something, Todd said. He sounded oddly breathless. If they knew what you were, if I ever told them, they'd spit on you and kick you out on your skinny old ass. Dussinger looked at Todd closely in the drizzling dark. The boy's face was turned to finally up to his, but the skin was pallid, the sockets under the eyes dark and slightly hollowed, the skin tones of someone who is brooded long while others are asleep. I'm sure they would have nothing but revulsion for me, Dussinger said, although he privately thought that the elder Bowden might stay his revulsion long enough to ask many of the questions his son had asked already. Nothing but revulsion. But what would they feel for you, boy, when I told them that you had known about me for eight months? 
and said nothing. Later, Todd tries to reclaim power, urged on by his failing grades, and Dussinger simply scoffs at him. On page uh, 161, you know, he, he says, I was crazy to get mixed up with you in the first place. No doubt, Dussinger said and smiled thinly, but you are mixed up with me. We must live in the present, boy, not in the past of I should have nevers. You must realize that your fate and my own are now inextricably entwined. If you blow the horn on me, as your saying goes, do you think I will hesitate to blow the horn on you? 700,000 died at Patton. The world at large thinks I am a criminal, a monster. Even the butcher your scandal rags would have me. You are an accessory to all of that, my boy. You have criminal knowledge of an illegal alien, but you have not reported it. And if I am caught, I will tell the world all about you. When the reporters put their microphones in my face, it will be your name, I repeat, over and over again. Todd Bowden, yes, yes, that is his name. How long? Almost a year. He wanted to know everything, all the gushy parts. That's how he put it, yes, all the gushy parts. I think they will put you in jail. They may call it a reformatory or a correctional facility, but there may be a fancy name for it, like this quarterly progress report. His lip curled, but no matter what they call it, there will be bars on the windows. For all of their positioning of power by the end of this scene, they have, for the moment at least, formed enough of a relationship to share a laugh together at the thought of the upcoming plot by Dussender to pose as Todd's grandfather, and the two of them laughing is somehow more disturbing than the scene in which Dussender kills a cat just to relive the feeling of murder. Ultimately, Todd winds up firmly under Dussender's thumb, and this pressure causes Todd to lose his sanity as he, in essence, becomes a serial killer. Despite the control Dussender might have on the boy, he has zero control of his own murderous impulses. Both characters begin murdering indiscriminately, neither aware of the other's actions, until Dussender realizes he can't control his own body, which suffers a heart attack following the murder of a wino, and is forced to call on Todd for assistance. From that point forward, both characters lose all control. Um, Dussender loses control of Todd. Um, Todd loses any control he once had over Dussender. Um, Dussender loses control over the situation of deceit and hiding that he had had for years as he is identified by um, a former uh, Holocaust survivor. And uh, everything then is just a train reaction to the end. Now, I want to really just kind of dive in for a little while um, with our, our two characters here, Todd and Dussender. And Todd is, he's the all-American boy, really. When we first meet him, he pedals up to a house on his bike, and every description of him so far suggests paperboy. But instead, he doesn't give a newspaper to the house. He picks one up. This reversal of expectations signifies the exchange that is soon to take place. Rather than give, he will take he will take from Denker the Nazi in hiding. He will take his teachings and ultimately through his actions will take his life. Lives, actually. Uh, Denker's, the winos, and ultimately his own. When he first arrives to Denker's door, we wonder what he's doing. He clearly doesn't know the man. The man doesn't know him. What possible reason could he have to be there? This question is a little mystery King inserts right away into the narrative. Not a major one. Just one present enough to make the reader question and draw them in. If a feeling unease starts to grow, don't worry, it should. We learn, still only three pages in, that Todd has been following, stalking this man, for a purpose undisclosed to the reader. Again, King spins us within a web of mystery. 
And then King comes at us like the spider he is, scurrying down from his web. He suggests a moment of monumental importance of the act of Todd refusing to let the door swing shut in his face on page 112. The door began to close. He might have dropped it right there, Todd thought much later on one of those nights when sleep was hard to find. His disappointment at seeing the man for the first time at close range, seeing him with his street face put away, hanging in the closet, you might say, along with his umbrella and his trilby, might have done it. It could have ended in that moment, the tiny, unimportant snicking sound of the latch cutting off everything that happened later as neatly as a pair of shears. But as the man himself had observed, he was an American boy, and he had been taught that persistence is a virtue. Don't forget your paper, Mr. Dussender, Todd said, holding the times out politely. Throughout the text so far, King pins us to the third-person limited perspective of Todd, and yet we aren't uh, in on the rationale behind forcing the door open. Nor do we understand the reason why Todd begins to think of the man just introduced to us as Denker by the name Dussender. Confusion starts to grow within the reader. Is this young man unbalanced? Is this old man in danger? What's going on? This need to know drives the story forward, and really, all that's happened so far is a young man knocking on an old man's door. This scene, where so little has happened, is loaded with suspense, mystery, and danger while simultaneously educating us on the character traits between the two characters, the persistence and the presently restrained mania of Todd and the desperate need for secrecy and anonymity of Denker. And now only four pages in, King has given us conflict directly defined by the character's traits. Only four pages in, and King is giving a masterclass on storytelling. Todd quickly drops the all-American boy image we thought we were uh, given in his introduction, revealing a smarmy aggressor instead, referring to Denker as Dussender, reveling in the fear that quickly appears, then just as quickly disappears from the old man's face. And at this point, I already hate Todd. It doesn't matter that I know that Denker is a Nazi, and, and I only know that at this point because it's my second time in this merry-go-round, but I still hate him all the same. Todd demonstrates a dogged determination, arrogantly rattling off the escape path of the fugitive Nazi, indulging his own victory of discovery. Now, throughout the scene, King juxtaposes Todd's negative characteristics with his superior physical ones, which no doubt mirrors Dussender's own observations of the boy, sensing that despite the threat he poses, because of the danger he poses, the boy would make a perfect Nazi. Once outside, I'm sorry, once inside the house, King reveals that the boy might be keen enough to put the pieces together, but is fundamentally stupid. Stupid for provoking a dangerous animal who has everything to gain with the boy's death. And stupid for imagining a situation in which he'd enter the man's house to find oil paintings of Hitler. At this moment, King establishes how naive the boy is, a child sheltered by the comforts of the suburbs, truly unaware of the dangers lurking behind the old man's eyes and heart. King suggests that Todd's discovery of Denker's true identity was meant to be, describing his introduction to war magazines as a key turning a lock or falling in love. As the conversation continues, we realize just how sick Todd is, treating Denker as a celebrity and Todd acting like a Nazi fanboy. He's full of gee-whiz spirit, proud of uh, the proud of the A he received on his paper, telling Denker about it like he's talking to a parent he desperately wants to impress. 
In fact, despite the amount of research he's done on the Holocaust, he's treating the whole thing not with the trepidation one would assume having when faced with a fugitive Nazi, but instead like he's in an episode of Scooby-Doo. And he finally reveals to Denker that he doesn't want money, never even thought about money, but instead simply wants to hear about the Holocaust. King solidifies their relationship with an unholy communion, a simple glass of milk. Milk, here the symbol of purity and life, is spiked with schnapps, tainted, and consumed by both of them, two characters who, only moments before, had been complete strangers, but who are now inextricably linked. Todd's growing relationship is interspersed with scenes between he and his parents, who are painful yuppies. Uh, more concerned with their son liking them than actually having to raise him. His mother calls him Todd Baby, and disgustingly, he responds with Monica Baby. His father can't enforce rules over Todd, even admitting it was hard to stay mad at him. Their willing cluelessness enables Todd to continue his perverse relationship with Denker. As for the relationship, as Todd continues spending time with Denker, it's clear that the relationship itself is poisoning both of them. The gruesome exploits of Denker are poisoning what's left of Todd's already warped morality, while Todd's insistence of dredging up the past is accelerating Denker's aging, turning him frailer with each passing day. The reversal begins, emphasized with the All-American Boy's Bad Grades upon his report card. The scene between Todd and his angry parents reads like a cautionary tale of the dangers of doing drugs, an exceptional young man, the seductive allure of the forbidden, the subsequent high, the loss of control, the neglect of everything but the drug itself. And make no mistake, for Todd, Denker is a drug, and by this point, Todd is a junkie who grows visibly angry when told by the parents that he will only have access to that drug once a week. Todd manages to convince his father he'll get his grades up for the January report card. In between the terms, his addiction grows, and once January comes and the grades plummet further, he starts to realize he's in over his head and a dissipating part of him thinks that maybe he wanted to get caught before something really bad happens. It's a moment not unlike The Shining, when Jack has a moment of clarity that if he keeps the family at the Overlook, he'll wind up murdering them, but ultimately decides to stay. Todd does the same, trying to convince himself that he's in control, and he has anything but. Todd has begun talking about himself and is starting to be consumed with anger. Furthermore, King teases the dreams that have begun plaguing him. Todd loses control of the situation, the power shifts into Dustinder's hands, and this causes deep, dark anger to bubble up to the surface. In fact, when forced to concede his afternoons to Denker's home so he can be watched while he studies, he looks at Denker with murderous intent, and Denker recognizes that look. Soon after, Todd viciously murders a wounded Blue Jay, his descent into the world of killing. His relationship with murder wouldn't end with the Blue Jay, after he truly discovers that he has lost all control of Dussender, after he had begun to have wet dreams filled with torture and darkness, after he realizes that Dussender has begun spinning a web around him all this time, a web in which both he and his future are cocooned, after all of this, he dives into the world of murder, beginning with a brutal stabbing of a wino. At this point, the central conflict has been resolved. Todd has gotten his grades up, and the guidance counselor won't find out the truth about Todd's activities. With the conflict out of the way, King can stretch the timeline. Whereas before, the narrative ticked away at a rapid pace towards the dreaded report card. With the results of the report card favorable, he gives the reader a chance to breathe, if not Todd. In Todd's instance, he is now thoroughly owned by Dussiner, and he takes his rage of the old man out on the winos. In short, his time with the Nazis has turned the all-American boy into a serial killer. 
He slaughters winos and dreams of, of the day he can fire his rifle into the oncoming traffic. And in the end, his world comes apart. After Dussender dies, the authorities realize his involvement, and he dies in a bloody shootout with the cops. That isn't given any detail, only one that suggests more than is explicitly stated, and is loaded with atrocity. And that is the, fi the, the final line of the story. It was five hours later, and almost dark, before they took him down. Now let's talk about Denker. We first meet him uh, on the bottom of page 110, and King writes, An old man, hunched inside a bathroom, stood looking out through the screen. A cigarette smoldered between his fingers. Todd thought that the man looked like a cross between Albert Einstein and Boris Karloff. His hair was long and white, but beginning to yellow in an unpleasant way that was more nicotine than ivory. His face was wrinkled and pouched and puffy with sleep, and Todd saw with some distaste that he hadn't bothered shaving for the last couple days. Todd's father was fond of saying, a shave puts a shine on the morning. Todd's father shaved every day, whether he had to work or not. The eyes looking out at Todd were watchful, but deeply sunken, lanced with snaps of red. Todd felt an instance of deep disappointment. The guy did look a little bit like Albert Einstein, and he did look a little bit like Boris Karloff. But what he looked like more than anything else was one of those seedy old winos that hung around, down, by the railroad. Now think of the implications of that line. Uh, with everything that the both of the characters will do to the winos uh, in this story, you know, it's clear that Todd first sees him in the flesh as a real person and thinks of him as a wino. He then subsequently goes and kills a whole bunch of winos. You know, yeah, he's... He's taking out his murderous impulses, but he's taking them out on people that remind him of of the man that that Dussender has become Denker. So that's an interesting uh, little little reveal when you take everything uh, and put it together as a whole. With what we will later learn about him specifically, that he's a Nazi war criminal, he's described not unlike a monster. Now keep in mind the first description, the description of Denker is a perfect detail of a cantankerous old man. Misanthropic, certainly, but nothing to suggest evil. Yet the second his true name is invoked by Todd, King writes the following. He pulled the door open again. One hand, bunched with arthritis, unlatched the screen door. The hand pushed the screen door open just enough to wriggle through like a spider and close over the edge of the paper Todd was holding out. The boy saw with distaste that the old man's fingernails were long and yellow and horny. It was a hand that had spent most of its waking hours holding one cigarette after the other. The spider hand yanked it inside. So, his fingers are spider-like. His fingernails long, sharp, and yellow like claws. As King teases the man's name, he teases the monster hiding in suburbia. Now, Denker gives way to Dussender once Todd forces Denker to wear that SS uniform. What it does is that it conjures the beasts within, and he actually becomes grateful for the boy's presence because of it. With the SS uniform, Dussender finally emerges and begins to control the situation, demonstrating the masterful deceit that had kept him alive all these years. Charming Todd's parents, tricking Todd's guidance counselor, tricking Todd in believing he has a document hidden in a safety deposit box that will publicly condemn the boy upon his own death. Now, ultimately, he's done, undone, by sheer coincidence. After he suffers a heart attack from the burial of a recently murdered homeless person, it just so happens that he is recognized by a fellow hospital patient who happens to be a Holocaust survivor. 
this resolution seems a bit uh, deus ex machina, just a bit too coincidental to sit right with me. The short story began with the cosmic joke that for all of his manipulations, lies, identity changes, and paranoia, his identity was discovered randomly by a small-town boy who understood the concept of the Holocaust from an academic perspective, but failed to understand it from an ethical one. Just a boy. And as we approach the conclusion of the story, Dussender is again identified not by failure of his own devices or some tragic flaw, but for some uh, sheer coincidence. That at the exact same time he was ushered into the hospital, so was one of his former prisoners. Now, on one hand, from a symmetrical standpoint, it, it, it sort of works, sort of. The story starts with the identification of Dussender when he least expects it, and the story ends with the identification of Dussender when he least expects it. However, to me, the multiple coincidences in a story that is grounded firmly in our reality, without any touch of supernatural, feels out of place, and frankly, it's kind of a cheat. If he had been undone through a mistake either he or Todd had made, it would have been incredibly satisfying and within the realm of the tight thriller he had spun thus far. If someone had grabbed a hold of a loose thread in one of their stories and yanked, their lives would have come apart, and I would have rather seen that. King played with this, and he does end with it. You know, and, and throughout the story, we see the race against time to find a letter in Denker's home that would prove the lie Todd told to his father, to desperately trying to find one of those wino sneakers, to the fact that a mere guidance counselor almost brought both of them down. Monica, on more than one occasion, grew apprehensive at Todd's shifting personality. Now, these are all examples of how the end could have come, examples that would have flowed organically from the central conflict established by their twisted, codependent, hateful relationship. The fact that neither of them is responsible for the events at the end is very unsatisfying to me. Instead, we are given an ending that suggests an unseen hand is placing the characters in various positions and gives us karmic retribution. That a Holocaust survivor could bring down a former tormentor is a great example of cosmic justice, but it wasn't the story that King was telling. It feels like the ending to a completely different story. Now, of course, I mentioned Todd's guidance counselor, who comes out of the woodwork to undo carefully put together lies, but his involvement is secondary to the identification of Dussiner by Morris. In contrast, Ed French's investigation seems second fiddle and too late, small potatoes compared to the global involvement of Dussiner's reveal. In the end, as he commits suicide, he thinks fondly of the boy and wishes him well, grateful for the time spent in his company, and as he, as he slips into permanent sleep, he realizes that upon death, he will be terrorized for eternity by the dreams that had haunted him throughout his life. Now with his death, everything threatens to come apart, and while I may criticize the coincidental nature of Dussender's own downfall by a random hospital roommate, I can't criticize the overpowering tension that comes after Dussender dies. Todd's story is threatened to blow apart. He realizes he won't be able to keep face under the interrogations of the men who had hunted Dussender across the world, and the little lies, one in particular in the form of an old letter, would bring ruination on his own future. Alright, I want to uh, now get into the part of the podcast that I like to call the kingisms, the, uh, the tropes and patterns that we see emerge um, from Stephen King's works and we see across multiple uh, Stephen King entries. Uh, so the first is small town evil. All right, this is not the, the first time that we have seen evil hiding in small towns. In fact, it's something that, that King has um, you know, ma made a name for himself because he deals with, we've seen it in, in Carrie, we've seen it in uh, Salem's Lot, uh, we've seen it in 
uh, the dead zone with the, the murders in Castle Rock. We see it very explicitly in Cujo, where we just see the worst of humanity. And here we see it again. And this, to me, is very much like Cujo in the sense that it is so pessimistic and it King does not show any sort of hope for the human race or he doesn't make any sort of positive statement on humanity whatsoever. This is a deep dive into the worst aspects of ourselves uh, and, and the fact that, that evil can exist, that it can exist in history and globally and it can cause the murder of so many people with something like the Holocaust. And that, and that today especially seems so far away with a, a, a ridiculous segment of people believing that the Holocaust never happened even. So you have that, and then you have America, This, as it's presented here in the beginnings, this beautiful small town with this all-American boy, and we realize that it's just a straight-up perversion, that evil can be found anywhere, and it can take any form. It can be an old man, and it can be a young boy. And that, to me, like I said earlier, is... It's, it's scarier than any ghost or vampire that, that king can create. Uh, the second kingism is capital letters to create a sensation. In this case, the annoying qualities of, of Todd's fifth grade Bugs Bunny lookalike teacher, Mrs. Anderson. Also, he, he plays with italics um, when we first meet um, Ed French to just show how with it he seems and how hip and cool he, he thinks he is with the kids, but... By, by focusing on these terms like dig it, um, it just shows just really how out of touch he is. Our third Stephen Kingism is connections. All right, Stephen King loves connecting his stories to previous ones that he's already written. And as a Stephen King reader, that's something when I first started getting into Stephen King, something that I just, I really, really loved. It just made me, they're, you know, they're little Easter eggs. And now Easter eggs are all over the place in, in popular culture. Um, you know, people wear their, their pop culture references on their sleeve and, and they hide them in whatever medium that they're, they're working in, whether it be a television show, whether it be movies, especially movies nowadays, whether it's, you know, some sort of comic uh, book movie, which are just littered with Easter eggs or even something like uh, James Bond. Um, the latest one was uh, Skyfall and Skyfall was uh, just filled with references and Easter eggs to, to previous Bond movies and celebrating the history of Bond. And so Stephen King loves doing this. He loves uh, taking whatever story that he's writing with and connecting it to a, a larger world. And so here, uh, Apt Pupil is absolutely no exception. As he uh, refers to the events of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, also found within the collection of, of different seasons. Specifically, Denker tells Todd of the banker who had sold him stocks and how he had been in prison and jail for murdering his wife. Now, that banker, of course, is Andy Dufresne. Dussender also makes reference of spring Jack, a character within the story Strawberry Spring from his collection of short stories, Night Shift. Uh, our Stephen Kingism number four is something that he just... He does over and, and over again in, in many of his stories, and he I, I just think that Stephen King must love this image. And that's people making such tight fists, they dig little bleeding half-moons into their palms. Now, Todd does this. He's so angry and squeezing his fists so hard that his fingernails dig into his skin, leaving little bleeding crescent moons. Um, so keep your eyes open for that uh, description because that's just one of the, the tools that King loves pulling out of his toolbox. Number five is the suicidal, sexually twisted serial killer. Here, it's Todd. Uh, most recently, uh, it was Brady from Mr. Mercedes. Towards the end of this story, 
um, Todd is almost interchangeable with Brady. Uh, he's on a suicide course, and he's going to take out as many people um, with him as he possibly can. And it's just his character traits and Brady's character traits are pretty much exactly the same. And number six, ugh, it's the unwanted insertion of a gun barrel into somebody. First, we saw it in The Gunslinger, and here, Todd fantasizes of doing the same thing to his girlfriend. Uh, it's disturbing, and I didn't like it the first time. I don't like seeing it a second time. Uh, and from what I remember, it is something that will be seen again, so you can look forward to that. And that's all the Stephen Kingisms that we have so far. Which brings us to our final portion of the, the Stephen King cast uh, of this episode, and that's our quote. I just wanted to find a, a, a and I know that I've, within this particular review, I've, I've pulled from the text a lot, but there's one more than anything else. You know, every time I read, um, reread one of King's stories, I, I try and, and find a, a, a textual excerpt that just uh, is the pure essence of what that story is. And I think that on page 278 to 279 is the perfect example of this. And this is the, the two detectives after Dussender has died. They're talking about Todd and how they had talked to Todd. And they're basically describing just kind of how creepy he is. Do you suppose, I ask myself, that the very atrocities in which Dussender took part formed the basis of some attraction between them? That's an unholy idea, I tell myself. The things that make, uh, the things that happen in those camps still have power enough to make the stomach flutter with nausea. I feel that way myself, although the only close relative I ever had in the camps was my grandfather, and he died when I was three. But maybe there's something about what the Germans did that exercises a deadly fascination over us, something that opens the catacombs of the imagination. Maybe part of our dread and horror comes from a secret knowledge that, under the right or, or wrong set of circumstances, we ourselves would be willing to build such places and staff them. Black serendipity. Maybe we know that under the right set of circumstances, the things that live in the catacombs would be glad to crawl out. And what do you think they would look like? Mad fewers with forelocks and shoe-polished mustaches, hiling all over the place? Like red devils or demons or the dragon that floats in its stinking reptile wings? I don't know, Rickler said. I think most of them would look like ordinary accountants, Weisskopf said. Little mind men with graphs and flowcharts and electronic calculators, all ready to start maximizing the kill ratio so that next time they could kill perhaps 20 or 30 millions instead of only six. And some of them might look like Todd Bowden. Maybe it isn't possible to stand close to murder, piled on murder, and not be touched by it. And that, to me, that is the story of Apt Pupil, which is a dark, dark story. One of the darkest stories that King has written, and until the stories collected in Full Dark No Stars, which came out within the last five years, I would say it was his darkest um, but the things that happen in Full Dark No Stars are, are pretty awful. Uh, but as dark as this is, again, 
I don't think this is indicative of, of King's belief system as I, I do find him to be an optimistic writer. That optimism is not found here. Um, and I think that it's necessary for him to sometimes go to these really dark places in order for him to sort of calibrate uh, his philosophies. Um, because as dark as this is, you know, we, we're going to get, you know, some hopeful stories again very, very soon. But, uh, you know, this is this is a good juxtaposition against the other ones that, that we have read. Uh, but this this is twisted. This is disturbing. This one kind of sticks in your gut. At least it's stuck in mine more so than, than the others. Um, with all the connotations there, you know, of, of drug use and sexual abuse um, and, and Todd's growing murderous impulses with his sexuality, it's just, it's, it's warped and it's twisted and it, it, it's uncomfortable and it's disturbing and it just just speaks about all of the, the worst qualities that, that mankind has. So that's that's really all that I have for for this particular story. Um, but stay tuned next week while I review the the movie um, adaptation of Apt Pupil, starring Sir Ian McKellen, uh, known to uh, fanboys across the world as Magneto or Gandalf, which I look forward to to, to watching because you know even though you know I found the story to be unenjoyable to read um it is very very well written and it's very effective uh considering what what king was was doing here i just i found the uh, the one that that was darkest up until this point to me has been cujo and cujo i just think narratively at times was a mess whereas this with one exception as i said about the the coincidence at the end it's a very well paced very very tight thriller it's done very very well so i just i'm looking forward to seeing what what the movie does because i've only seen the movie once before and i don't have a memory um or any sort of opinion on it i saw it i don't even know if i was paying that much attention to it but i'm looking forward to it and uh so stay tuned for for my review of that next week and if you have any thoughts on anything that i might have missed or anything that you would like to argue about um if you think that I'm wrong in any way, I, I very much would like to hear it. Uh, and if you just want to share any thoughts in general on Stephen King, please do so. You can write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Instagram, Stephen Kingcast. Follow me on Twitter, Stephen Kingcast. Uh, or you can like the, the Facebook page and, and follow me there, Stephen Kingcast. And don't forget to uh, to write a review on iTunes because I feel that the, the more reviews that I get, um, the more uh, more spread the, the Stephen King cast will be. So, you know, if you are if you have a couple minutes on your hands, do any one of those things and just kind of help spread the word. In the meantime, um, have a great week. I'll see you again this same time next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Go killer!